morning. So uh, we are uh, in the midst of the series, and sorry about that. Today is our uh, final week in our series where we're talking about uh, dreams and the power of a dream. And uh, just to give you kind of a, uh, where we've been over these last uh, five weeks is uh, we've been looking at the story of Joseph, and Joseph uh, was, in the beginning of the story, Joseph is sold his brothers, and they sell him to uh, uh to be a slave in Egypt to Potiphar, who is a captain of uh, Pharaoh's uh, uh, um, uh, governmental system. Uh, while, uh, while he's a slave uh, Potter, uh, to Potiphar for several years, uh, he's falsely accused of rape by Potiphar's wife, and he's sent to prison. And Joseph then will spend several years in prison. While he's in prison, he'll meet uh, two other staff members, are two staff members of the king, the cupbearer and the baker. And we don't know why, but they're both in prison as well. They've offended the king in some way. And while in prison, they have dreams. And Joseph is able to interpret those dreams and, and establish a good rapport with the, uh, the cupbearer. And the cupbearer's dream is a real positive experience. And the cupbearer is granted uh, uh, leave from prison, and he's back at the uh, side of the king. And uh, Joseph tells him, when that happens, uh, will you please remember me? But the cupbearer doesn't remember. And Joseph then will spend a few uh, more years in jail until the king has a dream. And when the king has a dream, it uh, is a reminder to the cupbearer, hey, I know a guy. Right? Everybody has a guy, right? You know, I know a guy. I know a guy who interprets dreams. And so uh, the, uh, the cupbearer tells the king about this. And so Pharaoh, the king, then calls for Joseph for, out of prison. And Joseph is able to interpret that dream. It's a famine that's going to take place. And uh, Joseph not only interprets the dream, but he gives a great process on how, how Egypt can survive this famine tells them to spend seven years, you're going to have a great harvest, uh, store up as much as you can, 25% of what you gather, so that during the seven lean years, the years where there's an economic depression, uh, Egypt will be able to survive. And that's what happens. And uh, Joseph uh, is able to demonstrate these, these, this great leadership skill to the king, and the king grants, uh, is aware of that, and the king says, I want you to be second in charge. And so Joseph goes from prison to second in command of Egypt, which is the world power at the time. And so it's quite an impressive story. But if you remember the first week, I kind of gave you a, a graph of Joseph's life, and I wanted to bring it up again. So uh, you see, this is kind of the direction that Joseph's life started out. He's a favorite son, then he becomes a slave, then he becomes the manager of households, uh, of Potiphar's household, then he's in prison, then he becomes the manager of prisons, but then he uh, has more prison time and now second in command in Egypt. But notice that it's filled with ups and downs. And if I were to ask you to graph your life, I would suggest that it probably would have some similarities to this. That there's always going to be these up and down moments in our lives. It's hills and valleys. It's who we are, right? So the brothers uh, now in the story have unknowingly come to Joseph for some food. And when they get there, they bow down before him. They don't know that it's Joseph. They assume it's been at least 20-some years have gone by 
assume that he's still a slave or they assume that he's dead and they don't expect him to be in Egypt and so they're bowing down before him and so in that moment I believe that Joseph begins to see that the dream that he had all those years ago when he was 17 years old that dream is starting to come true and in that moment and Pastor Dave talked about this last week here in Mount Laurel and I had a chance to talk about it in Voorhees is that Joseph forgave his brothers is in Genesis chapter 45 you can see by Joseph's actions that forgiveness has been offered and he chose to not allow the hurt that was done to hurt his heart that he allowed the hurt that was done not to hurt his heart and so Joseph then invites the entire family and now at this point when you've got 11 brothers you're going to have a lot of family and so these 11 brothers bring 76 people or more. It's about 76. Uh, uh, we don't have the exact record. But over 70 people travel from uh, their homeland to Egypt because Joseph invites them. And he's able, because of, the, because of his uh, good relationship with the king, the pharaoh, he's able to give them a choice piece of property in Egypt. And they're going to spend many years now under Joseph's care. Fifteen years now are going to go by. Fifteen years from that moment when Joseph has forgiven his brothers, fifteen years will go by. And during those fifteen years, these brothers and all 70-some family members are uh, a harv- a planting and harvesting property that has been provided to them by Joseph because of the king. This family will be cared for under Joseph's leadership. And after 15 years, Jacob, the patriarch, the father of these children, of, the, of, the, uh, of all these sons, Jacob is going to die. And Jacob, before he dies, requests that his body be taken back to their homeland and that he be buried there with his forefathers. And so Joseph and everyone gathers together. They travel about 200 miles. They bury Jacob, and then they travel 200 miles back. And the story we pick up is right after that happens it's in genesis chapter 50 it's going to be up on the screen and it says this after burying jacob joseph returned to egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial but now that their father was dead joseph's brothers became fearful They said to each other, now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong that he did for him. Now hold on, leave it right there for a second. So the brothers believe that Joseph has been harboring some bitterness and holding back from seeking revenge. Fifteen years they've been together. The hurt, the original sin of selling their brother into slavery has ha- was happened three and a half decades earlier. And yet these brothers have not resolved this issue. They believe that Joseph is harboring some kind of bitterness toward them or some kind of resentment. They believe that their dad is the only reason that Joseph hasn't harmed them. And I've got to wonder here, knowing the brother's character, if projection isn't part of this. That these brothers are thinking, if it were me, if I had been sold, I know how I would feel. And so they're projecting their feelings onto Joseph. So up on the screen, verse 16. 
they sent this message to Joseph. It's a message. They're brothers. They sent a message. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you. For their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. Now before your father died, they sent a message to their brother. Before your father died. It's likely this story's made up. Knowing these brothers, they're making this up as they go along. They've, they've decided that, you know, we don't have the moral high ground in this at all. And so let's just make up a story and let's give Jacob some of this authority. Let's use our dead dad's authority. And so they say that, listen, your father uh, said these things to us. Up on the screen. When Joseph received the message... He broke down and wept. I wonder why he wept. There's a lot of reasons, I think. Is he just sad that after all these years, his relationship with his brothers is just never going to be right? It's never going to be the same. Is it that his brothers thought so little of him that they are sure that he's just been waiting for the moment when he could seek his revenge did he weep because they sent a message did he weep because they think dad's the only reason that joseph hasn't come after them but for 15 years joseph has provided a place for his brothers in egypt and yet these brothers thought it was only because of dad so verse 18 then his brothers came and threw themselves down before joseph look we are your slaves they said and so they back up their plea for mercy with this display of humility and they bow down before him interesting the dream is beginning to become reality Right? This is the dream that Joseph had. This is the dream that led to the brothers selling Joseph into slavery. Is that they, he dreamed that these brothers would be bowing down before him. And they were angry about that and they wanted to stop the dream from happening. And now three and a half decades later, they find themselves bowing before Joseph. So up on the screen, here's the response. But Joseph replied, and it's probably one of the most famous scriptures in, in Genesis. Don't be afraid of me. Joseph says, am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God did it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. And so we're going to stay there for a few moments. I want to talk about that statement and what the ramifications are for it in Joseph's life and what they are for us as well. So here, all the power is at Joseph's disposal. The brothers are bowing in submission, and Joseph has every opportunity now to seek vengeance. And instead, he chooses, like he did 15 years earlier, to re-emphasize the forgiveness that he has for his brothers. Decades ago is becoming reality. After all those ups and downs of life, all the times when it seemed like the dream was God, 
uh, was gone. Joseph is beginning to see the whole picture, though. After decades of this life, the full picture of Joseph's life is becoming clearer and clearer to Joseph. See, though the brothers had planned and schemed, and though Potiphar's wife may have deceived, and while the cupbearer had forgotten all about him, and even when the king chooses to exalt him, looking back over his whole life, looking back at every situation, every circumstance, even every moment, God was with Joseph. In every up and every down, in every hill and every valley. And so Joseph is able to look back over his life, and he's able to say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Joseph is letting the brothers know that God was the orchestrator. What's an orchestra orchestra director do? They direct all the pieces, right? There's, there's, There's different things happening, and yet the orchestrator the orchestra conductor is making sure all those pieces work together so there's some direction that's taking place he's saying god is the architect of my life that god has designed this life that god is the author of this life that he's writing this life out that all these moments that have happened to me are being used by god with a bigger plan that every situation the good and the bad It's all about us understanding. Joseph's saying, I understand that God is using all of these things for good. Now, Joseph didn't romanticize anything here. He tells the brothers, what you did was wrong. He plainly says, you intended to harm me. I mean, he's not looking at this like years later and saying, well, it really wasn't so bad. I mean, you sold me to into slavery and I end up in prison because of it. It really wasn't that bad. He doesn't say that. All right. He calls it what he says, he's you intended to harm me. But what Joseph says is that may be true, but there is a greater truth at work here. Joseph chose to not get stuck in that moment. But the greatest truth is that God intended it all for good. That you intended to harm me But God intended it all for good. That God is working in and through humanity. That God chooses to work in and through circumstances. That God chooses to work through pain and through triumph. And so some questions I want to challenge you to consider are, can you see the overarching and overruling hand of God in your life? As you look back over the hills and valleys, as you look back over the things that have been going on, can you see the overarching and overruling hand of God in your life. I, uh, I, was, I was in the office as Jeff was, was uh, Jeff, Jack was editing the, uh, the video of Lonnie and Craig. And uh, all I could hear from my office was Gabriella's hollers throughout. And I thought, what a great piece, though. And, and so Jack was like, we're trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to deal with that. I'm like going, I think just let it play as it is. Let it go, because that's God's voice in this whole thing. That in the moment, and I'm sure if you were to ask Craig afterward, was God in that? At the moment, it's hard to see. But now when you watch a video three years later, yes, crystal clear. 
So can you see the overarching and overruling hand of God in your life? Do you know that no matter what evil is brought against you, that God can use it for good? And here's what I want you to remember today. I've got a lot more to say. I'm going to give you it up front though, okay? I still got some time. You don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. You don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. Now, there's a verse that is used all the time. It's Romans 8, 28. It's up on the screen. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So you don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. Now, here's the thing about that verse. I'm going to be a little honest with you. Most of the time when people use that verse, it's at a time when you don't want to hear that verse. Right? And so what you really want to do, the response, now this is kind of my response, I'm a little bit violent, all right? My response is, if someone throws Romans 8.28 at me when I'm in that kind of mood, I want to punch him in the neck. <laughs> and then I want to say, hey, how's God using that for your good? Right? That's what you want to do, right? I'm honest, right? That's where we're at, all right? You just want to punch him in the neck. Because when your life is falling apart, a well-meaning person offers that to you. And it is true. You don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. Here's what's interesting about this Genesis story. Is Romans was written thousands of years later. Paul wrote that, penned those words thousands of years later. Joseph was living that thousands of years before. He was saying... You intended to harm me, but I know that God has a bigger picture in mind. And I know that God is painting something, painting a life and putting it into place. And he's using all these situations and all these circumstances. And he's going to make good of it. That God causes everything to work together for good. And so while Joseph didn't have the New Testament, he certainly had a New Testament understanding of this. That God uses all these things. You don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. And so here's what usually happens. Our lives are in the hands of God. In other words, God, God uses circumstances, all the circumstances of life, that God works and orchestrates in that way, that the things that go on and the things that happen, God doesn't cause them, but God works in them. That God allows those things to take place, and God then is using those things in our life and those situations to work us and to form us and to put us and have us be the people we need to be. And so God is this with us God that we talked about five weeks ago. And in the hills and the valleys and in the ups and the downs and every circumstance, God is with us through all these things. And so our faith tells us that God is with us even when we can't see God. But we tend to look at that in three ways, and I'm going to suggest the first two, I'll tell you up front, are the incorrect ways. The first one is there are times that we think of God and we think of our circumstances as a formula. A formula like this. If I do this, then this will happen. So the problem with this view is that God does not operate inside formulas. That God is bigger, wiser, and more powerful than that. As a matter of fact, a great example of that, if you look in the New Testament, if Jesus were here today and we were to interview Jesus and we said, Jesus, no, let me change it. Let me do it this way. If we wanted to know how to heal a blind person, how does Jesus do that? 
If we were to use the Bible as an instruction book for that, and we were to say, well, let's see how Jesus healed blind people, you would see that he never followed the same formula twice. There was a time where he just said someone was blind. He would just speak to them, and their blindness would go away. Another time, he would touch their eyes, and their blindness would go away. And then one time, gross, he hawked up a loogie. This is really in the Bible. He hawked up a loogie, spit it into the dirt, made mud, and then took the mud loogie and put it on the dude's eyes. It's really in there. Gross. And then had him go wash. And he could see. Now all of those are examples of Jesus healing someone of blindness. Never did he use a formula. But yet we tend to think of God and we tend to think of our circumstances as a formula. The reality is we can't control God by our moral behavior. We just can't control God. And our bad behavior does not elicit an action from God either. God doesn't choose to punish us because of the things we do here on earth. Yes, there's consequences. Right? If the speed limit's 55 and you go over 55, that's not God punishing you if you get pulled over by a police officer. That's a consequence. You chose to break the law. Bad things have happened and will happen to people better than you and people who are more godly than you. And good things have happened and will happen to people who may be far worse than you. So don't try to understand our circumstances as a formula. Don't try to understand the things that are going on in your life as, well, what's the formula that God is using? God doesn't work in formulas. The second way, which I don't believe is any better, although it does seem better, but it also is, has some faults, is connect the dots. Remember connect the dots as a kid? I remember going to, uh, uh, I don't know if it still happens. Yeah, you still do. I don't have little kids, right? When you go to restaurants, right, you always get a kitty page, right, with crayons. You still get those, Craig? Yes? Okay. And so there's almost always a connected dot on there, right? And so you follow the numbers one to two, two to three, right? I'm explaining this more than I need to explain this, right? Okay, <laughs> just making sure. All right, so you guys, if you respond, then I know that, you're, that you got that, okay? So here's the deal with the connect the dots understanding of our circumstances. If I follow the numbers, when I'm finished, I'll have completed the image. It's very similar to following the rules or, or a formula, okay? This is similar, but it's a little bit different. The difference is this. The problem with the connected dots is if I mess up or if I perceive what's happened in my life, a circumstance or a situation, if I perceive it as something that's messed up, then what happens? The whole picture is messed up, right? So if I'm going one to two to three to five and I skip four, I put the line on the page, I've ruined the picture. It can't ever be completely fixed. There'll always be a mistake, right? And you can go back and go from three to four, and then, and then when you were little, you would like kind of really darken in the four to five to make the emphasis, right, that you corrected that. When we see through the lens of connect the dots, we believe that circumstances are ruining the picture. But that's not true of God. That God can redeem and God can restore your life at any point in time. And so valleys 
are never a challenge to God. Hills and valleys will happen, and they will be part of the landscape of your life. And in the end, everything glorifies God, even the darkest moments in our life. But to see it in the moment is not possible. Joseph in the pit did not see God's glory, not even in that moment. That's why faith is faith in another day. That's why faith is about trusting in God. In the moment, we don't see it. But someday, someday when we look at the whole picture of our life, looking back at the hills and the valleys, we'll see the full picture of God in our life. And so if it's not a formula and it's not connect the dots, I'd suggest it's this. It's relationship. Or it's intimacy. That God and our life circumstances are best understood in this context. John 14, 21 says, Those who accept my commandments, this is Jesus speaking, and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus calls you and I, those who follow after him, family, friends, lovers. The with us God, the Old Testament, calls us family and friends and lovers. And so God chooses to work through our circumstances, through the willing choices of human beings, not understood and not revealed to us, and it can seem like a mystery. But when we choose to have a relational mindset, it changes the way that we see the events and the circumstances that take place in our life. And if we engage God, and if we choose to be part and choose to take these circumstances of life and put them into a relational context, then our primary focus becomes developing that relationship and not just seeking answers to our questions. And so we can have this reality, that God is good, and that God can be trusted, and that God is working out, and that I don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. So one of my, uh, another one, I, I love the Old Testament, I talk about this often, I, I, I certainly have great admiration for the New Testament, but I love the stories in the Old Testament. And the oldest story in the Old Testament is not in Genesis. It's actually the book of Job. It's the oldest story written. We, uh, scholars believe it was the first book put down on, on, onto papyrus, I guess, put onto, uh, written down. And the story of Job is, it's also the only story in the Bible that, that you get to see behind the curtain. It begins where it's this interchange between God and, um, and, and, the, 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 and, and Satan. And they're having this conversation. And we get to see that, that God is working and orchestrating all that happens. And that God is, is directing all that's going on. And that God is using the circumstances of life. And so Job has some horrible experiences take place in his life. Just, just horrible, horrible, horrific events. And throughout the story, Job's friends and family are all telling him, just curse God. Just curse God. Job, just give up on this relationship you have with God. Just give up on it. 
all right? It's not helping you, and it's certainly, uh, if God's involved in this, it's awful. And towards the end of the story, Job has this opportunity to have a conversation with God. And Job, God bless him, chooses to complain to God. And he begins complaining, have you looked at my life? God, have you seen all that's going on? Have you seen what's happened to my family? Have you seen what's happened to me? Have you seen all that's been going on? All of the horrific events that are part of my life, have you seen this? And then God answers Job. It's on the screen. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Can you imagine now? You, you're, first of all, are you, we got to put in a mindset that we're having a conversation with the God of the universe. All right? And God answers. And he answers with a question. That's always trouble. He says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? And then he says, brace yourself like a man. <laughs> like, all right. You know, when God says, buckle up, brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And then he goes on in this whole chapter with questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And throughout this chapter, basically what, Job is, or what God is telling Job is, Job, you're too small to understand all that I understand. You're too finite to know what's going on. You're trapped, Job, by time and space. But me as the God of the universe, am not trapped by these things. That I can, I can play a role that you can't begin to understand, Job. I am bigger and grander than any situation, any circumstance you may have, and I know what's going on, and you need to trust me. And Job, I am good. And things that look like broken glass now are going to make sense one day. Things that look like broken glass now are to make sense one day. Because you don't have to understand the plan to know that God is a purpose. That God can be trusted and that God is good. So then Joseph goes on in Genesis chapter 15, he says this. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And then he says, he brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. And so there's this second part that Joseph mentions. He says, see, the dream was so much more than Joseph having a dream. It was God's redemptive plan for his people. See, that was the challenge that Joseph had when he was 17. He saw the dream, and the dream was about he was up high, and his brothers and father and mother were down low, and they they were bowing down before him. And a 17-year-old is going to think that's really good. But now, three and a half decades later, when Joseph sees this and realizes the dream was never about Joseph, the dream was always about what God could do through Joseph. And so when our dreams intersect with God's dream, 
Our sufferings and our blessings have a meaning beyond our own benefit. And so I would challenge each of us that this is what I would call big picture dreaming. That there's this big picture in front of us that we may not see. And that our dreams, when they intersect with God's dreams, that there's power in that dream. And it allows us to influence those around us. For this. And so, so our definition of discipleship is that we are in the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What's the second part? For the sake of others. For the sake of others. And so... Uh, this morning at our Voorhees campus, we were uh, commissioning all of our, uh, the folks who were part of, of uh, different summer service opportunities. Uh, summertime at Hope is really about serving. And all of the things, a lot of the big initiatives are all about serving. And so, so we have our kids in uh, Kids Connect uh, down the hallway and, uh, and we'll be uh, preparing to serve different folks in our communities. And so they'll create gift baskets for police, and they'll, uh, and they'll, they'll create uh, different, I don't even know what they do. They serve. Curly <laughs> thinks they serve. I just know they do that. Don't tell Chris. I don't know what they do back there, all right? But they're doing that, right? Uh, our, our summer mission trips for our youth ministry are, are going out to serve. Our, uh, our vacation Bible school is about serving. Uh, our our uh, uh, arts camp is about serving kids in our community who can be part of these kinds of things. Here in our Mount Laurel campus, here's how we're doing that, is our Chick-fil-A family nights, which I've mentioned to you already, is six different nights where we're going to a different kind of VBS where, where Chick-fil-A is allowing us to uh, uh, partner, uh, partner with them so that we can have families uh, work together on a project and we get to, to, to meet different families and serve them in that way. Why they get Chick-fil-A? And that works out well. Uh, even our even our concert that's coming up on uh, Friday, July 27th. Uh, not don't come on Saturday; you'll have missed it. Uh, and 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 we're going to want everyone to be a part of that because we want to make a big splash at the park. We'll make a big splash at the park. We want people to see us because I was there. Uh, I was there this week for uh, uh, another event at the school, and uh, I was walking around the park. There are so many people there, and I I just walked around and and not sure where the stage is supposed to be at and all that kind of stuff but the whole time I thought it's going to be great just to be in the park with all these people who are just going to wonder what's going on see our big old trailer out there I'm going to make a big splash then in the fall we have our fall festival we're working with Habitat for Humanity for a weekend in November where we'll do a, a house build they have a house in Haynesport that they're building Big picture dreaming is that the circumstances and the things that have happened in my life, the things that have happened in your life, and that God can use that for the sake of others. That God can use that to change people around us. That our dreams for our life, when they intersect with God's dreams, we discover that it's always about us serving others. See, you don't have to understand the plan to know that God has a purpose. That there are going to be these hills and valleys in our life. And that God can be trusted and that God is good. That God is bigger than our circumstances. So uh, we're going to pray together. And uh, Susie's going to lead us in a... Right? Yes. Let's pray. 
And so, God, I thank you for this time. Thank you, God, for the story of Joseph and the way that, God, you worked in, in his life. And, God, as I look out across this room, the men and women who are here this morning and those that could not be with us, that collectively here among us are lives that have gone up and down and have had hills and valleys. And, God, for some of us, those high moments have been outstanding. And we've been so blessed and so fortunate. And at the same time, God, our lowest times have been horrific. And God, we just want to trust you that we're been and the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs that God you are a God who is beyond time and space and God you are working good in our lives and God that good that you're working is so that we can have an influence on the people around us that God your big dream for us for each of us Is for others. And so God, help us like Joseph to believe that while things done to us were intended for harm, God, you intended it for good so that many lives could be changed. God, I pray that that would be our prayer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.